Holocene has ended. What we do now and in the next few years will profoundly affect the next few thousand years. The only conditions modern humans have ever known so far are changing and changing fast. Nothing stays the same on this planet. Everything changes. The Earth is, is going into one of these jumps, and you don't know what is going to be on the other side of those jumps. The Earth is always jumping. Things move on this planet. Things are not still. Everything is turning. Everybody thinks about the future. It's part of what it means to be human. We can't help but think about the future. We can't help but anticipate. We can't help but prepare. We can't help but long or look forward to or maybe even dread something. Everybody thinks about the future. And what you believe about the future is one of the most important things that directs how you live in the here and now. What you believe about the future of your relationship will direct and dictate how you invest in that relationship. What you believe about the future of your job directs how you approach your job each and every day. And so one of the things that we know is that the future, in terms of your faith in it, is one of the most important things about you. Many of you probably know the story of this small town in Maine. It's called Flagstaff, Maine. This is a picture towards the turn of the 20th century of this quaint little town that the state decided that one day was going to be completely purchased by the state because they were going to dam up a, per, a portion of this area and they were gonna flood the entire basin. So imagine what it was like to live in your little town and then all of a sudden everybody's property is purchased and you know that within a year nobody's going to be living there. Would you repair that fence that you were going to repair? Would you paint that wall that you were going to paint? Would you mow the lawn anymore? One by one, every single one of them leaving that town until it became a ghost town, and what began as this quaint little village turned into something that was abandoned. And after a year, Flagstaff, Maine looked like this. 
Ray Johnston, in response to this story, said, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Will you say that with me? Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. The video that we saw just a few moments ago gives us a picture of the future. The Bible describes the future in a very different way. At the end of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And at the end of the day, the book of Revelation is an unveiling of what our ultimate future is. And according to the Bible, it goes like this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And He who was seated on the throne has said, I am making everything everything new. Back in 1982, when I was nine years old, a film came out with many of these characters in it. A little group of orphans, but in the middle of that group of orphans was a particular redhead by the name of Annie. And Annie won the lottery because of a PR stunt with a rich millionaire who wanted to show how kind-hearted that he was. And so they invited Annie to come and stay for a while at this particular house. Annie had always lived as a poor girl and a slave. She had never known anything except for heartache and hardship. And you could have seen the jaw-dropping expression on her face when she peered around the flowers and the foyer to see the palatial splendor and glory of what it might be like to be in that house. At first, she thought that she had been invited there in order to be a servant, in order to work, and then they had to explain to her, no, 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 you're not here to work. You're here as our guest. And so little orphan Annie began to break out in song and said, I think I'm going to like it here. And who wouldn't? Going from squalor to splendor, wouldn't that be magnificent? Now, over the course of the musical and the movie, we discover that no matter how great a, a house might be in its magnificence, A house also is a home, and it's all about a relationship. And so what the two of them begin to discover together, Daddy Warbucks and Little Orphan Annie, is what it means to be with one another. And then she can truly say, I think I'm going to like it here. You know, it's interesting when I try to think of analogies of what it's going to be like for you and me to come into the future that God has in store for us, the glorious new creation in heaven that God has prepared for us. I think of that little orphan coming into that house, getting a new family, being adopted, being claimed, and it's more magnificent than you have ever imagined. 
One of the things that's interesting when we are confronted with the reality of our ultimate future in heaven and that heaven coming to earth, we know more about what's not in heaven than we do what's in heaven. That when the Bible describes heaven at the end, it's through the refrain of no more, no more, no more, no more. Did you notice that pattern? I love how Randy Althorn fills it out by saying it this way, no death, no suffering, no funeral homes, no abortion clinics, no psychiatric wards, no rape, no missing children, no drug rehabilitation centers, no bigotry, no muggings, no killings, no worry, no depression, no economic downturns, no wars, no unemployment, no anguish over failure and miscommunication, no con men, no locks, no death, no mourning, no pain, no boredom, no arthritis, no handicaps, no cancer, no tax. Whoop, whoop. No bills, no computer crashes, no weeds, no bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams, no accidents, no septic tank backups, no mental illness, no unwanted emails. Can I get an amen? Close friendships, but no clicks. Laughter, but no put-downs. Intimacy, but not even the temptation to immorality. No hidden agendas, no backroom deals, no betrayals, no fear, no insensitivity, no anger, no gossip, no jealousy, no hurt feelings. No one will go hungry and all will be satisfied. No one will weep and everyone will laugh. Oh, I think I'm going to like it here, said little Annie. That's what heaven is not like. Could we just double-click for a few moments on a couple of these images of no more that John tells us about as we lean into the future? The first no more that he says is that there's going to be no more sea. Now, in my previous assignment in Newport Beach, California, I served as the chaplain for the yacht club. This was a really difficult assignment, but I had to pray over it. And, and part of the responsibility was a ceremonial one of the blessing of the multi-million dollar yachts. And part of it was this community of people, and maybe they didn't have a pastor or a church home, and so there were weddings and funerals. One time a family asked for me to perform their funeral at the yacht club and they chose this Revelation 21 passage, I had to stand up in front of a yacht club and declare that there will be no more sea in heaven. That's a career-limiting move as a chaplain at a yacht club. And so let me explain. The sea, according to the Old Testament, is the symbol for chaos, for destruction, for anti-creation. And so what the Apostle John is saying in this revelation is that there's no more sea, that there's no more monsters lurking in the deep, there's no more creation that's not a part of God's plan. And even more specifically, where John is, he's on an island in Patmos in the beautiful Aegean Sea. I have stood at the place where they believe that he was imprisoned and looked straight ahead over to the coastline of Turkey where you can see the city of Ephesus. That was his home. That's where his family and his beloved friends are. And so when John says that there's no more sea, what he means is that there's no more separation between us and getting back home. If there was no more sea, you could just walk back. And so when we get to heaven, there's no more separation. There's no more chaos. 
The other thing that the Apostle John tells us is that there are no more tears, that he will wipe every tear away from their eyes. I want you to try to consider and think of the moment. When was the last time that you really cried? I don't mean like watched the end of Toy Story 3 and cried. I mean like really cried for something. For me, it wasn't that long ago when I was in the parking lot of a hospital when the warm tears were pouring down my cheeks. Jesus will wipe away those tears. There will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. All of the disease, all of the things that might cause you to cry are taken away and redeemed. There will be no need for those tears. The next thing that John tells us is that there's no more temple. This one requires a little bit more of a technical explanation. The Bible describes in the Old Testament in painstaking details the construction of the temple, the dimensions of the temple, and that the center of that temple is known as the Holy of Holies. It is the place where God's glory, God's presence was said to uniquely dwell, and that the dimensions of that temple were a perfect cube. And then when we get to the end of the Bible, it says that there's no more temple. And in the midst of that, it also says that the dimensions of the city, the city itself, is not a square, but a cube. Why does John say this? He says this because the city itself has become the holy of holies. No longer is it limited to just the place where the priest would go once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. Now it's a place where all of us get to dwell in God's presence. There's no need for a temple. There's no need for a synagogue. There's no need for a church. There's no distinction between sacred and secular. For you see, all of creation is now enveloped into the very presence of Almighty God. You don't need a church because all of life has become celebration and worship. And so there's no more sea, there's no more tears, there's no more temple. There's also no more curse. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we know of how we have all strayed and gone away from the glory of God. We didn't just break a rule that we broke God's heart and we have been living under the shame of that curse ever since and God takes away that shame. And if you go back and look at Revelation 21, John gives details of the kinds of things that won't be in heaven. There's gonna be no more deception or lying. There's gonna be no more immorality. There's gonna be no more unfaithfulness. There's no more murder or violence. All of that is redeemed and taken away. There's no more curse. There's no room for anything that is contrary to the character of God and his kingdom. And then perhaps my favorite image, there's no more closed gates. All of us know what it's like to be on the outside of something looking in. I have a friend who graduated at the same time that I did from college, and she went to go work in Africa. And one time I was talking with her, and I said, what have you really missed about living in the United States? And she said, honestly, taking a walk. 
She said, in the United States, we take for granted the freedom, the security that we have just to be able to go take a walk somewhere. She said, in the place where she lives in Africa, there are houses that nobody has anything of value, so you can walk anywhere there, but it's not very safe to walk around. And then there are these secure places, but every house is like a gated community. Everything is locked up, so you can't walk up there. There's, there's no place to just walk. Imagine a place where there is both perfect freedom and perfect security all at the same time. That's what heaven will be like. The walls are still there. It's not the loss of distinction, but the gates are always open so you can always go in. This is what community will look like for us. And so you hear this, no more, no more, no more, no more. These are the kinds of things that won't be in heaven. We know very little about what will be in heaven, but we do know these three things. We know it'll be new, we know it'll be beautiful, and we know it'll be with God. We know it'll be new. He says, behold, I am making all things new. I'll never forget when we had our first child, what it was like to kiss and to smell the top of that baby head. Is there any greater aroma than new baby head a little peach fuzz on the top of their noggin and you can just smell that new life. It's like a new car, but better. (laughs) God's gonna make all of life smell that good. It's gonna be new, it's also gonna be beautiful. Some people get uncomfortable with the language of Revelation 21, all the bejeweled nature of streets paved with gold. All of that is just intentional language to describe how beautiful it is going to be. Imagine the most beautiful place you've ever seen or ever been and magnify it by gabillions and that's how beautiful heaven will be. The way that John describes it is something that I know as a privilege as a pastor, do a lot of weddings, and the back doors of the church open up, and the bride walks in. Can I tell you something honestly? I have never seen an ugly bride. Always glorious, always radiant, always expectant. That type of beauty that characterizes all of creation It's going to be so beautiful. And the other thing that John says, and this is really important because this is the most misunderstood part about heaven, is that it's going to be with God. You know, a lot of people think of heaven as a pleasure factory. They think of heaven as the kind of place where there's lots of really good stuff going on and there's a good place and there's a bad place and that God is trying to manage who gets to go to the good place and who gets to go to the bad place. And that you gotta have to say the magic formula in order to get to go to the good place and if you don't say the magic formula, then you go to the bad place. And everybody wants to go to the pleasure factory. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to the pleasure factory but you gotta get the right technicalities done in order to be able to go to the pleasure factory. That's what a lot of us kind of think about heaven. 
But the thing that we know most about heaven is it is the place where God's presence is everywhere. So let me be clear with this. If you don't want to be with God, heaven will not be an enjoyable place for you. One of my professors used to say is that, is that hell is the best that God can do for people who don't want to be with him. In the end, there's only two different kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says to them, thy will be done. C.S. Lewis says, all who go to hell, choose it. So here's the bottom line. Dallas Willard says, God is going to let anyone into heaven who can stand it. Do you want to be with him? It's not so much pleasure factory versus bad place as much as it is a place with God or a place without God. And which do you want? It was a beautiful spring day in Summit, New Jersey. It was one of those days that had been after a really long winter. Um, it was one of those days where all the windows in my office were open, letting in the aroma of the trees and the flowers after that long, harsh winter. My office was on the corner of that building close to an intersection, and I was meeting with someone, and you could hear all the sounds of what was going on outside. And while I'm in the midst of this meeting, I hear the screeching of tires, I hear the crumple of something, and then I hear a woman screaming hysterically. I run down those steps two at a time. I burst through the front doors of the church, and I see a sight that I do not want to see because I see a car, and underneath that car, I see a crumpled up jogger stroller. I don't recognize the woman who's screaming but I see a little girl who had been fortunately tossed from the stroller who was lying and bleeding along the side of the curb. And when I reached down to pull the blonde hair away from that girl, I recognized her as Cameron. She was a part of our church. I had my assistant immediately call her parents, both of whom who worked in New York City, who commuted and were at least an hour away, and the woman who was crying hysterically in her own native language, was a nanny. I did not know her. And so I climbed into the back of the ambulance when it arrived, and we went to the hospital, and we came to discover that Cameron was very fortunate that day and that she had bumps, she had bruises, she had scrapes, she had contusions, she needed to be watched, but she was going to be okay. i never forget what it was like to have this mother an hour later, this New York kind of tough, businesswoman burst into that hospital room looking for her baby girl. And what she kept saying over and over again was, oh my God, I'm not ready. Oh my God, I wasn't ready. Oh my God. And later in processing this, she told me that was the first time between that moment of hearing the news and getting to that place, she said that was the first time in her life that she had ever really prayed. And so you can imagine how meaningful it was for me and for them to stand 
a handful of weeks later at the front of that church with an open baptismal font and to baptize not only Cameron, but her mom and other members of the family. She told me, she said, Rich, I had dreamed of every future for my girl except for the most important one. I had dreamed about where she would go to college. I had dreamed about whom she would marry. I had dreamed about what her life might be like, what her career might be like. She said the one thing that I had never considered for her or for myself for that matter was I had never considered her ultimate future. And that's why I kept saying over and over again, I wasn't ready, I'm not ready, I wasn't ready. And then she realized she needed to get ready and that there was a future. The question is, what will that future be like? Everybody thinks about the future. And what you think about the future directs the way that you will live your life in the here and now. And where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. And that God has an ultimate future for you, one that is more glorious than you and I living in our squalor and slavery could ever know. And one day, if you want to be with him, he wants to be with you. And on that day, you might be able to say, I think I'm going to like it here. Let's pray. Our loving God and Father, I pray for anyone who, here who has not given a deep thought about their future. I ask that you will convict us that we not only need to think about tomorrow and the next day and that we need to think about our ultimate future. Thank you, God, for the vision that you've given to us, that glimpse of what heaven will not be like, all of the things that no more will be there. No more chaos, no more separation, no more tears, no more disease, no more curse. No more closed gates. Help us to live in the here and now and the security and the freedom of what you have given to us and most of all, to see the beauty and the renewal of creation that can be with you. Forgive us for seeing heaven as a pleasure factory instead of that place where you will dwell with us and we will dwell with you. And so God, for anybody here today, who would like to put their hope into a different future. May we quietly in our own hearts and souls in this moment turn to you. And whether that be for the first time or a renewal of our own commitment, we thank you, God for your incredible promises, for what you have done. 
and for where you're taking us to welcome us home. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people, Son.